12th Annual Writers' Conference in Santa Barbara. Tape number B, Alex Haley. And I must say I agree that or of both is a letdown. It's a bit as though you'd thought and thought how to end the line and finally thrown up your hands and scribbled or of both in an oh well sort of way. In any case, it's not up to your usual felicitous standard. In sense that you are probably wedded to those last two lines. Poets are often stubborn about opening and closing lines, we find. Still, I'd be derelict in my duty if I didn't come right out and tell you that beauty is truth. Truth, beauty, is, is really terrible. Um, <laughs> here again, one gets the impression that having written beauty is truth, you chewed your pencil or quill and racked your brain to no avail, and so once again settled for the easy way out. <laughs> beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Well, sure, things equal to the same thing are equal to each other, but you see, Jack, it verges dangerously toward a simple-minded tautology, and you wouldn't want that fussy old fossil who reviews for the spectator to get his teeth in anything like that, right? <laughs> Not that we want to put words in your mouth, but just to indicate what direction you might go in, how about something along these lines? It's clear to all that truth's eternal, from other ranks right up to colonel. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't in work work in beauty, but getting that in would overstuff the line and ruin your meter. And that's not a bad rhyme, eternal, colonel. Anyway, think about it. Uh, we'll look forward to your revisions. That's it. Well, uh, you'll get that. I hope my agent isn't here in the room but it could have been from him. Don Congdon, where are you? He's out playing tennis, that's what. He's not, he's not out trying to sell my stuff. He's worrying about Lillian Hellman and Styron and Manchester and Bradbury. All right, we're, we're here to celebrate Alex Haley. Uh, I've known him for 30 years, and we met in an extension writing course. Then I had a saloon and he used to come around. Uh, he was in the Coast Guard at that time. He had never written anything except love letters, and he'll tell you about that, and it's fascinating. He was a professional love letter writer, and um, he will tell you about that, and it's fascinating. But then he, uh, then he uh, progressed. <laughs> uh, wrote a, a book called Malcolm X. He created the Playboy format for interviews. He uh, went on to write uh, a book called uh, Roots, and um, Nils and I knew him very, very well because we ran this saloon. And um, Alex, uh, for a non-drinking man, uh, spent a lot of time in that saloon talking with writers that would have to happen to drift in, like Bud Schulberg and so forth. We'll hear about that, I hope, from Alex. But um, then he wrote this book, and he, I think maybe Nils and I were one of the first people to hear the story of Roots, and it was so exciting. And um, he said, I, I think I should get an agent. Who should I get? And Nils said, well, Barney's got a terrific agent lawyer down in um, Hollywood called Louis Blau, a very high-powered guy. And, and Alex said, do you think he'd see me? And he said, well, we'll give him a call. So we gave him a call, and he said, well, I'll give your friend Mr. Haley 15 minutes. And uh, that's pretty generous of, for Mr. Blau. So Alex came in to see Mr. Blau and sat down, and uh, Louis looked at his watch and said, 15 minutes, Mr. Haley, what's your story? Two hours later, he stood up, reached over the desk, took Alex's hands, and said, Mr. Haley, if you can write this story the way you told it, you will change the world. 
and he did, and he has. Alex Haley. Well, um, you know, when Barney was, I was standing back there with Niels Martinson as Barney was talking, and it just all sounded like it went so nice and easy and quick, and, and I was telling Niels, I remember, and I do, I have so much nostalgia about the two of them that uh, um, one of the better memories I have, the most pleasant ones, is uh, Niels used to live on uh, I can't remember the name of the street, except it was extremely steep. What was that, Niels? Greenwich Street in San Francisco, and he had a house on the left-hand side going up, and it was really you almost leaning going in there, and um, we would sit and talk for just endless periods. Barney would come over there, or we would go to Barney's place or something, and um, I learned, I guess, by osmosis, a lot about writing by simply being around them. I always have thought of and still do Barney. I, I remember I was telling somebody out in the lobby a while ago, he doesn't know it, but at one time I literally in his bar just sort of eased my hand out. He didn't see it and touched the edge of his coat because I wanted to touch the coat of somebody who, had, who was like he was, the, the image of a big, big time writer and who was so gracious with it. Niels, Likewise, except that I tend to think of Niels Moore as one of the greatest editors, editors I've ever met anywhere. He just can deal with words with a scalpel sort of way. And the two of them were just a tremendous combination uh, to grow up under, as it was. And I think about it in context of this conference as it just makes me happy to see what I was exposed to on a much more specialized, localized scale with them, now radiated over lots of people, as you represent. I think about, uh, I was thinking walking over here, you know, and I was talking, saying that it just sort of astounds me to go, as I do now, lots of places, and if you are on your way to the place you're going to speak, you'll see lots of other people on their way, and you know they're going there to hear you speak, and I want to, damn. How did that happen? You know, because <laughs> it wasn't all that long before I was walking over to hear somebody else or something like that. And um, uh, when I'd come to somewhere like now, I couldn't really, though words of my business, I truly couldn't really communicate to you how much I am there out in the audience, although I happen to be, in a sense, sitting up here, but. I remember so very, very well the, the experiences which preceded sitting up here as I also thought walking down here, I wish there was some, one, some way to say which ones of the people walking down to be in that audience, which ones of them are going to be sitting up there with people sitting to listen how it happened because that is the way it happens. Nobody knows. I don't know if it's five among you or ten among you, or maybe fifteen. If God is good, there may be fifteen who in five years will be the people to whom others will come and listen. And not in some sense of uh, obeisance, or I want to see the Lord, but 
<coughs> that you, we all tend to have that feeling about someone who has managed to come through all the difficulties, all the, the, the uh, obstacles of one another nature and of several natures that meet every writer. Nowadays, um, literally now I guess pretty much around the world, and I do now through the blessing of roots travel pretty largely around the world, and you hear from writers, I don't care where they are, even sometimes when they have to be translated. No, I guess the last, interesting enough, the last writers conference I spoke to before this one was in Peking, China, and the questions were translated, and they were very much the same questions you hear in this country. What is that magic thing that will make my work be published. Now there in China, interestingly, they don't think about selling it. They think about just publishing it. Um, it's just like in China, bless their hearts, they don't think about royalties. They just think about publishing. They, they published uh, 250,000 copies of Roots and I haven't got a cent from it, you know. And the thing, <laughs> and the funny thing about it is, they lionize you like you never thought of, you know, and Jesus, marvelous to have you here, and the Peking duck, and the this, and the that, and the other, and, and nobody ever mentions royalties, you know, it's just it's one of those little things, you know, and uh, uh, a group of us are over there now working on, uh, as a matter of fact, I came, not directly here, but I came from Peking back here, uh, just recently, a group of us are making a, a television, we will be making a 12-hour, maybe 10 or 12-hour miniseries about the history of China. Uh, we got permission, and it, and it came about through Roots, because after it was published there, the government, cultural arm of the government, decided that they would like to see if there could be made a film about China, which would enhance worldwide the image of China, as they felt that Roots did the image of Africa. So they contacted me through their embassy, and ask if if I would head up such a, an endeavor, and I was, I am flattered at the whole idea, and um, I got in touch with a very dear friend, Norman Lear, and his company, Embassy, so we put together a little company and sent four of us went over there and talked with them at great length, and the thing seems to be now um, going along pretty good. It's going to take a long time, it's challenging, exciting, but I think now that um, maybe the biggest need human beings have, all of us, is we desperately need to know more about each other than we do. And that's on a worldwide scale, you know, and it's a role that we who are writers play such a vital role in. If you think about most of us, and I just ramble, I have no notes, I don't have, I just, whatever comes to my head, as you can tell. But I'm just thinking about this, that most of us, when we are kids, you know, we grow up and, uh, First in our homes from our parents, then in school from teachers and peers, and later along as we develop in life, we hear other groups of people, racial, religious, nationalistic, or whatnot, described to us as children, usually with some nickname, as a rule derogatory, sometimes amusing, and to the nickname generally are attached three or four what I like to call pronoun cliches 
such as they do this, they wear that, they look like this, they eat that, something other, characterizing whole groups of people. And for lack of ever knowing the people for ourselves firsthand, we may go through the whole of our lives thinking about them in that simplistic and almost always erroneous manner. And, and so one of my particular pleasures is to try and help people better perceive other people. That was one of the things I didn't sit out with any such noble intent as that in, with Roots, but it kind of worked out that way, that it gave lots of people, starting with me, a much better perception than I originally had had of the history of Africa, of the people of Africa at that time. And it did that with a lot of other people. When you just consider that most of us, and again starting with me, uh, the biggest image maker of the culture and the history of the people of what literally is the physically second largest continent on the face of Earth, the biggest image maker worldwide for a long, long time was Tarzan, which was sheer fiction, sheer cartoon, sheer caricature. And yet that is what set most of our minds with bones in the noses, with this and the that and the other, which wasn't true at all. And that which is in roots about, you know, woven around Kunta Kinta, the little boy growing up in his villages, much more nearly accurate what really was. And you can go in the history of almost any people there are. I don't care who they are, where they are, and you will find a fascinating, gripping human drama behind them in ancestral terms. And to me, that's just happened to me, my, my particular bit tends to be historic things, bringing history to life and all that. To skip back into this thing we are involved in writing, I, I really love to be able to talk about it because that, that's what I am, that's what I do. You know, by now, if I could pick anything in the world that I know people earn their livings by doing, I would have to pick exactly what I do. I can't think of anything I would rather do or be than a writer who has been blessed enough to have something done that gives you that kind of entree that a big book does and a big film does, which in turn kind of opens literally almost the world's doors to you. And um, in Roots it has been the case because it has been uh, uh, translated so much. The book is now in 40 different translations. It's now in Russian as the 40th, and I'm sort of, that sort of pleases me a lot, you know, and all that. Yeah. Mm. And I, I go back in my mind lots of times. I really think more about back then than I think about now. Back then, in its own bittersweet way, was more exciting. I, you may be as I was. I got over the years before anything like all this began to happen, I got an almost umbilical attachment to the post office box. <laughs> you know, I really, really did, you know. And to this day, I have, now it's a problem because I get so much mail from one or another source, I suppose it would run something like four to five hundred letters a week on the average come to the office. And you obviously cannot answer. You can't even read four or five hundred letters a week. So there are people who receive the mail and they kind of, you know, call out, you should see this, that, and the other. And it always bothers me that they're going to miss something in the other that I don't see, that I really wanted to see. And just flying in here yesterday, I learned that there was a guy, I'd been waiting for some stuff, some research he was doing for me, and I haven't seen his research. And I just by a chance remark yesterday heard that it has come in, but they called it away from me. 
Now, I feel like going in there saying something salty to somebody tomorrow, but I don't because they, are, they mean well, and I know they mean well, but they just don't reach it. Or sometimes I'll go in that mail and pick out a letter that just wrings my heart from somebody who's a writer, who is telling you the problems, he or she are telling you the problems about having written maybe for years, and they haven't sold anything, the rejection slips, what can I do? And people will write extreme things like they're ready to give it all up, implying suicide, all that. And, um, and another thing I get, and I guess any writer gets a lot of who has had luck to become a quote name writer, and that's invitations to write a book for someone. And they will give you 50%. Uh, some, lots of people write, they want to tell all. And this is generally ladies who want to tell all about everything. <laughs> And they, they just need you to write the book for them and so forth. And you just can't do that. But, you know, I remember I didn't miss a day. When we were together in, in San Francisco, I had a box, box 2907 at, at, at the, at the, uh, uh, on Battery Street, 550 Battery Street Post Office, San Francisco. And I didn't miss a day going there, praying on the way that there would be something. And, you know, one thing, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I always like to share it when I can, particularly with groups, writers. I don't think I could talk about anything here where we'd all find a greater common denominator than the subject of rejection slips. You know, I was a master at rejection slips. I got all kinds of rejection slips. Until I began to sort of be a little bit of a connoisseur of the text of rejection slips. Um, and it tended to be that most of them, and the way I would do this, I should say, is I would I would write on piece, and I would try to find as many, maybe as 12 potential markets for it down the line. And so when one, you know, you'd send it out with a stamp self-address envelope, and you knew it was coming back. You just sent it because you had to send it to get it out of your hands. And um, then I had 11 other alternatives for when it came back, and each one, and by the time if it didn't do something with the 12 alternative, which was very frequently the case, then I wouldn't throw it away, I'd put it in a box. I've got stuff right now from 1940. It's horrible. I didn't know it then, but now I know it if I look at it, but it was, nonetheless I saved it. And I'll tell you something about that saving, too. It is a good thing to save it. It might be that writing may be terrible, but the idea may be sound. You may be able to do something with the idea later. I have done that. Um, anyway, I got all these rejection slips from different ones. They'd come back. You know so well how that happens. And it would tend to be that the average one would say something in the loose area of thank you for thinking of us. And it would be a little oblong card, you know, printed thus. And it would come on your, your script sent back to you in your envelope. After Roots happened, uh, I remember two things. Funny the things that you, the, the recipient, associate with, quote, success, are not the things most people might, all the lights and the this and the that and the other and the great long lines and things. The things that I remember most of all were that maybe two weeks after Roots was published and it became pretty apparent it was going to be real big, I began to get phone calls from my agent, and from this very same Louis Blau, my manager that Barney talks about, and Niels knows well, and, 
And then I'd answer, and they'd say, well, I'd say, what, what is it? And they'd say, well, how are you feeling? <laughs> and, 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 and I remember that was my first real association. Nobody ever gave a damn how I was feeling before, you know. <laughs> and that was all they wanted to know, how are you feeling, you know. And that's one of, the, one of the things when it happens to you, that, let me tell you, that's one barometer when it's starting to happen, when your agent just wants to know how you're feeling, you know. That's one. And then another thing that began to happen was um, people would uh, come and they, people would, would, would meet you and they would start just talking to you as if they'd known you 10 years. You never met them in your life. And that was just a, 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 another thing that went along with it that struck me as how different this world suddenly is. Um, another thing was, I don't know how they do this on airlines. I know for a fact, because I've talked to some airline people since, there's no memo that goes out that says X person has achieved now in this following shell. Somehow or other, there's an invisible network among airline employees that as of a certain day or, day or some, something, they decide that now you get the A-class treatment. <laughs> and, and it really is, and it just happens. And there's no, no notice, it just somehow is something they start to do. And it's, you know, that you get checked in earlier, you go around the, 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 that thing you go through, the metal detector, and they give you a little lick with the, you know, thing in the hand and nothing and all that. And uh, you can come through customs if you're coming from abroad and somehow they don't think you've got nothing stashed in your bag and you can get on to it. It's just a whole lot of little things that begin to happen. But anyway, to get back to the rejection slips and how that manifested, after Roots began, was such a success, I began to be interviewed, and that was another thing. It was all of a sudden, within, I'd say, a week after Roots hit, I couldn't move for people asking me questions about what did I think about this. Nobody never cared what I thought about that before. That's the nation of being suddenly interviewed. And uh, one of the things that I would get asked a lot was, um, what, sir, has been your biggest thrill as a writer? And in some time after, I'm sure people expected me to say, the people who would interview expected me to say it was, say, winning the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, or this or that, or the other, or whatever, which were marvelous things, to be sure. But you know what my biggest, really, truly my biggest thrill was? Had to do with rejection slips, and it was way, way before Roots. I had been writing since I started for about four years, just like many of you doing now, just knocking your brains out, trying every day, every night, or whenever you can write, and sending your stuff out, and getting your rejection slips back, and just keep on, and keep on, and uh, to the point you quit telling your friends even that you're writing, because everybody thinks you're crazy anyway, you know. I know, and nothing you could tell me, I couldn't tell you back in, 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 in uh, uh, nostalgic memory. And in the fourth year, I don't know how many rejection slips I had collected by then, but I would guess, I would guess nominally at least 50, at least that many, maybe more. But it would have been, I'd say, between 50 and 70 by that time, four years writing hard. And I had done nothing but get, like many of you have done, nothing but get that thank you for thinking of us card right back every time you send your stuff out. And then I remember so well, it was in the fourth year, I went to the post office, and there was the familiar manila envelope that I had addressed to myself. 
I knew it had my story that I'd sent out to these people, and I anticipated, as indeed I found when I slit the envelope open, one more with a clip on it and that little thank you for thinking of us. But on this particular little card, somebody, some editor, somebody had written in longhand with a pencil, nice try, exclamation point. And I remember that thing just boom. <laughs> I mean, that was such a thrill, and I haven't forgotten it to this day. It was the realization that somebody something about something I had in that particular set of however many pages it was had moved some human being to do that for the first time. And to this day, I remember that as my biggest thrill. Um, in the re rejection slip area, as I progressed beyond the fourth year, I, I would say maybe about the sixth year of writing, I got so bold that I started sending manuscripts to bigger magazines. The ultimate about at that time was, say, um, Reader's Digest. This is just about when I met Barney and Niels. And um, the Reader's Digest, being the digest, naturally had no ordinary rejection slip. They had one that was, it was a little piece of stationary paper with that uh, insignia of theirs on top and it was typed to you and said, Dear Mr. Haley, this does not quite gel for us. Sincerely, the editors. And it bothered the hell out of me because I had been a cook in the Coast Guard for a long time. <laughs> and, and I always got a mental image of you'd put too much water in the jello. <laughs> and you know how that will just kind of slosh around and it's is, is neither fish nor fowl, you know? And it would just give me this awful, feeling of, of, you know, it was just frowsy, terrible, you know, and uh, that thing just really, it became a thing with me. And you know, again, I know I'm talking to the audience who knows how you in, within yourself can start creating all kinds of little old foolish fantasies and, 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 and uh, things that happen psychically or you make them happen just because you're so frustrated that you can't sell your stuff. And so I collected a number of these uh, this does not quite gel for us. Just like I was collecting, I didn't collect as many because you didn't send as many things to Digest as that. But finally I did sell a piece to the Digest. And then I, along after a while, I got out of the Coast Guard and I sold another. And then, bless me, the Digest uh, gave me assignments and I became an assignments writer for the Digest. And um, uh, by this time, I didn't get the rejection slip anymore because I'm writing on assignment. I might have to rewrite the piece three, maybe even four times, but I was, everything was okay. But the big deal was, after Roots, now, all of a sudden, I am as hot as you can get in the literary world, at least for that time. I mean, I was so in demand, it was unbelievable. And one morning, I got a call. I was in Los Angeles, and I got a call from John Allen who's now corporate director of the Reader's Digest. I knew him as a young editor. I knew most of the people as young editors. We grew up together. And John said, Alex, you have got to do us a favor. And I said, what is it, John? He said, look, and there was some group of advertisers, big blue chip advertisers meeting in Detroit. And they had tried to go through my lecture bureau, but now I had a lecture bureau. You can't operate without one <laughs> when all that kind of stuff started happening. Look, let me tell you, you get, I would say at that time I probably got 2,500 requests to speak in one year, easy. 
You cannot deal with that. There's no way. You've got to turn it over to somebody who will just deal with it. So I had the lecture bureau, and they had gone to them, and the lecture bureau people, Bill Lee, had told them there was no way possible that they could get to me because I was just so over in demand. It was absolutely true. I couldn't, I could hardly sleep. And somebody among the advertisers knew about my long association with the Reader's Digest, so they had called the Digest and asked them if they would use any influence they could or lean on me, whatever the expression goes, to get me to speak for them. They really wanted me to speak. And that was another thing at that time I learned. It didn't matter whether you knew anything about that subject. People just wanted you to speak to them just because, you know, you could speak to pumpkin raisers. It was fine. <laughs> you know, it, they just wanted you, the, the name there, more than anything else. And I didn't know anything about advertising, but they really wanted me to speak. And they were blue chip. And, and John explained all this. And he said, the thing is, Alex, these people represent a great many of the people who buy the Pages Now magazine. And so we don't want to impose. We know how it is, but we really would appreciate it if you could find some way. And I told him with every sincerity in my heart. It was as if Barney or Niels had called me with the same thing. said, look, I don't care what you know I'm going to do it. Somehow, if we can work it out, and we will. So I told Lou Blau, the guy Barney talked about, who was running everything for me then, and I said, Lou, I don't know how, but I, I want to do it. And he got on the phone, and things began to happen with people who book you and all that. So finally it was booked. I took, I remember, a red eye, as we call them, the late night flight, 1130 or something, from Los Angeles to New York. I can sleep pretty well on planes. We arrived at like 6, and I was met by this long, obscene black limousine. <laughs> and it took me from the airport downtown to NBC up the elevator to sixth, sixth floor, and I did the Today Show. Back down, back in the limousine, upstate New York to uh, Chappaqua. The Reader's Digest ad, uh, mailing address is Pleasantville, but the actual offices are in Chappaqua. And then I was to have lunch in the uh, guest house with the editors. A long table, crystal, china, shrimps look like that, long, oh, I mean, it was just incredible. And everything was lush, 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 and there's a lot of people laughing. You know, if success comes, you see more 32 teeth mouths than you ever saw in your life. You, you really do, you know. And, uh, and in lots of ways, you find yourself sort of privately sitting inside yourself. You respond to things that go on surfacely, but inside you're saying, damn. You know, you're looking at all these things happening. And I think the reason is you're a writer, and internally a writer is always objectively taking notes. One way, always. You do it involuntarily. You do it just like I did it. And so we got through the lunch, and it was really marvelous, a lot of hugging, a lot of kissing and all that, you know, with editors you'd known. I mean, the girl there and women editors and everything up there. And uh, uh, then I got back in the the limousine and now we drive to Westchester Airport and 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 when we got out there the limousine stopped and the guy the driver runs around and opens the door before you can get it open and and you step out I did step out and there in front of me or not far from me was the Reader's Digest corporate private jet with the insignia on the side and there stood two pilots by the, a little step that led up into the plane, like a little step ladder laid down at a lower angle. And they each had on gray pants, 
black shoes shined. They had on a blue coat with brass buttons and that little Reader's Digest horse up on this pocket. And they were each blonde and crew cut and blue eyed. I remember that just, they were, they were almost like, they were almost like twins. And they, and, and they just stood there. And so the, the people just kind of looked at each other. It was like we were a little pageant. Nobody told me what to do. And I looked, well, obviously I'm supposed to go over there and get in there. Because I'm, I'm supposed to speak tonight in Detroit. And that's going to take me to Detroit. And I can't get on ordinary planes no more, you know, and all this. And, uh, and, and uh, so I walked over, and I'm feeling very foolish. Now, there's the limousine and his driver behind me. And so I slowly kind of walked on over. And the driver grabbed my little bag, and he brought it right behind me. And um, then when I got to the plane, these guys both looked at this little step. And so I walked up the step and got in the plane. And then I looked around the back, and there the seats in there for maybe about, I'd say about maybe 12 people, maybe 14. But there's nobody but me. And I really was feeling quite foolish. And I, so I went and kind of turned right and went about three seats back and decided, well, he as good as anywhere. And I sat <laughs> down, and one of, the, one of the guys out front came up the steps quickly, and in there where I was, he said, Mr. Haley, said, now, if you would like, here is uh, anything you'd care to drink. And he pointed a scotch bourbon to everything. They had it right there, a little concealed thing. And then he said, now, if you'd like to smoke here, and they had everything from cigars that long to cigarettes of different brands. He said, if you'd have something to eat here, and they had a big silver tray covered with that paper you can see through with sandwiches cut in little round circles or some of them little triangles. <laughs> and um, it was all, you know, and how on earth could one human being even think of eating all that, even if he wanted to, you know? And I'm, I'm telling you the way it registered to me. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want you know, anything. I just finished lunch and everything fine, so I said thank you. And then the other guy came who'd been standing down there, and now he shut the door behind him. And the two of them went and sat down, and I'm sitting in my seat. And one of them had said to me uh, to put the thing, the strap on, so I did that. And then all of a sudden they started up. It was very quiet, very quick, and you know how most jets go off like sort of like that, or leaves go off like this. And you were, and you're just sitting up there, and before you know it, literally above the clouds. And I remember sitting up in there, and the first thing I thought just came to me and said, I, I wish Grandma could be here, you know? Because really the reason I was up there really was my grandmother who told me when I was a boy the stories about the family and everything. And then I was glad Grandma wasn't there, because she'd be scared. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, <laughs> And then the other thing, it, it, I'm sitting up there just looking, you know, you're looking out of this little round window. And you know how when you're way up in a plane and you see farms and they look like little postage stamps of different colors, patterns across. And I was looking out at all these farms as this little thing just zipped on its way to Detroit. And a thought just came in my head just as calmly as it could be. And it was no big deal. It just came. I said, well, I guess it finally jailed. You know, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That was mine. Most writers could give you some comparable thing of how, you know, things had happened to them if um, they've had the luck to do big, big books. Um, I was saying to Niels a while ago back there, 
a, a writer who is an inspiration to me, a thrill, and a dear, dear friend. She was, I think last time I was here, she was a speaker uh, um, um, who wrote, uh, she's up in, in uh, um, San Francisco now. Her book is, um, I don't even have to tell you the lady's name, a book full circle is about the biggest, oh yes, Danielle, of course I'm talking about, Danielle Steele. Her book full circle is I think her 10th in a row bestseller. She's just an incredible lady, and I, I um, love her dearly. And she, a fellow writer, and I get together, we have a thing. We'll call each other at 2.30 in the morning and just talk, because we know each other right at those crazy hours. And uh, um, I just share that sense of camaraderie with her, perhaps more than any other writer right now. And I think about, Say it again at a writer's conference, you always come back to the thing that is probably the biggest single common denominator among most of the people there is how do you sell your stuff? And as I tell you, you couldn't tell me a thing that I couldn't tell you out of my own um, history or past or whatever that I couldn't match it and maybe improve upon it for you as an experience. Um, what advice does one give? And you ask this so often. And I guess it really comes down to work. If you wanted to get it down to one word, that's what it would come down to. And the thing that I would say in way of trying to expand upon that, that I've sort of thought about a good deal, I think that maybe one reason that so many people have so much frustration who seriously want to write, and this has nothing to do with being male, female, black, white, pink, religion or whatever is is anybody who wants to write commercially that is to say to sell you stuff is that I think that most people and maybe it's not so not enough people who go in seriously wanting to write really truly understand from the outset what a tremendous personal investment that profession of writing does require to become successful and that's what throws the frustration into it and there's a sense, oftentimes, of paranoia that begins to develop. As you keep getting rejections, many people start taking it very personally. It shouldn't be personal. Hell, the people don't even know you. All they are saying to you is, in a very abstract way, this isn't quite yet what we want. I know now, just as because I've come to know them, I know editors, publishers now, and I can tell you the frustrating thing is, believe me, they are just looking just as hard for that exciting new writer as the writer is looking for publication. It's just that thing you got to, both of you got to cross that gap. Last week I was talking with my editor whom I love dearly, Lisa Drew at um, Doubleday, and she's so excited about a lady who she read an article by this lady in a magazine. I can't remember the name of the magazine, but it was an article about Vietnam and how her generation viewed Vietnam and the decisions that it gave them. And she went to this lady and asked would she be interested in a book, and she, the lady said she was, and Lisa worked with her, and I can't remember either the title of the book, but Lisa said it's a guaranteed bestseller. will be coming out very shortly, the first book this lady has written. Um, but anyway, to get back to this thing of the time factor, you see, I think maybe the reason it's thus that people don't realize it or not comprehend how hard writing is, is because most things that we might want to do as professions for careers have, as a rule, some finite length of time attached to them. Like um, 
Yes, let's just take a time most of us have experienced. We graduate from high school. At that time, a lot of people who are high school graduates have decided what they feel they'd like to do as a career. So first you tell yourself, and then you tell your parents and your peers and, and others, well, I think I'd like to be a teacher. Now what you say, again, first of all to yourself and then to others close to you and everything, is you are saying, when you say I want to be a teacher, you are saying, I am therefore pledging that I'm going to spend at least the next four years working pretty hard in some college or university to attain the credentials to become a teacher. That's what you're saying. If you say, I want to be an architect, I think that you are saying from high school at least seven years of obviously pretty hard training to become an architect. Whatever, almost whatever career you name, there's a time involved where if you work pretty hard and get pretty good grades, you will uh, be certif uh, certified, uh, have a diploma or something. If, for instance, from high school you, wanted, you said, I want to be a surgeon, I've been told that the very least from high school is at least 13 years of obviously the most intensive work to learn to become a surgeon. And so people accept that. We all know people who so, you know, just matter-of-factly accept that, okay, I'm going to give everything I've got, go through whatever is necessary for X period of time to become that thing. Now, writing, not so. There is no degree on earth that says, as a receipt of this, editors and publishers will buy what you write. You're just out there. There is no finite period of time attached. And the result is that people, some among us here in this audience may have had this experience. We tend to go into writing thinking on nebulous grounds, think something like, well, I got good marks in composition when I was in school. Uh, people have always said they liked my letters, that they were very interesting. My aunt says I write well, and things like that. You know, and they, they, are, they are very serious things. We take these things and they may indeed be very, very true. And that may, may motivate us into writing. But the thing is, um, most of us, when we get motivated, we start, we don't talk with other people. It's not the kind of thing you talk with other people about so much, but in our own psyche, our own selves, just whatever communication we have purely within ourselves, we'll think things like, well, maybe if I work pretty hard at this writing for a year, maybe then I could sell something. Or maybe two years. Or, or, or most of us don't really have a sense of time at all. It's just kind of some time, but we generally far grossly underestimate the amount of time. Again, I would have to tell you that my real first perception, I had been writing for some time, and my real first perception of the time investment in writing came from them two guys sitting right back there, Barney and Niels, who would talk about it because they'd been around so many writers. And they would just sort of talk, you know, it wasn't that we were having a seminar about how long you must write, but just in the course of chit-chat, I began to get from them. And as a matter of fact, when I met them, I had already begun to sell. I wrote eight years, almost every day or every night, before I sold the first thing, a little piece to This Week magazine. It was a, I don't know, most of you uh, wouldn't remember, those who are older would, it was a Sunday supplement. 
something like parade. They used to be in, 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 in newspapers all over the country. And they paid me, I never will forget, my first check in the world from writing was $100. And I never will forget, I took it to a bank and had them cash it in $101 bills. And I put 50 in this pocket and 50 in this pocket and walked down the street squeezing, squeezing. Because it was, it was, it was a, a tactile feeling that I had literally earned something that I could feel in my hands. And I never forget that. But anyway, it was after that when I met them, and we used to talk about that. And the reality is that I've come to know now as well as Barney and Niels is that most writers' experience, I mean the writers, you read their stuff and you hear about them and you say, wow, I wish I could do that and so forth. Most of those writers would tell you that before they sold, they had been writing hard for at least 10 years. Or more and that's that if anything is the secret is is the secret that you've got to sort of wipe out boundaries of time that well I'm gonna give it two years I'm gonna give it three you have to go in with a kind of a feeling it's what I'm gonna do and just wipe out the time factor and work and you have to wipe out the feeling of suffering I feel that I, and at the same time I said I know it's perfectly perfectly understandable to think of suicide but 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 not for long you know it's like a lady I know bless her heart Elizabeth Irwin in Tennessee has got a husband a marvelous guy but he can just frustrate her no end and you ask Elizabeth said somebody said have you ever thought of divorce and she said no murder I've thought of many times but never divorce you know and all that and 